Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. The national uprising against racism started with Minneapolis police killing George Floyd. And Floyd's death was five years after Freddie Gray was killed by police in Baltimore. We speak to civil rights attorney Latoya Francis-Williams. A crime is a crime. The standard it takes to prosecute a civilian is the same standard it takes to prosecute a police officer. And as protesters are uncompromising about the truth of American history, new battle lines are drawn about heroes, sacred cows, and gatekeepers. We speak to Professor Gerald Horn. This is taking place at a time when you have drivers in cars driving into protesters and killing them. Police are shooting rubber bullets and gouging out the eyes of nonviolent protesters. We're still discovering and uncovering the spectacle of black men are hanging from trees and that being declared suicide. But rather than focus on those issues, they're focusing on gatekeepers from below so that their position as gatekeepers from above remains intact. It's really scandalous. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, you may be hearing a lot about Supreme Court decisions this week concerning release of Donald Trump's tax returns or concerning the court's controversial decision allowing employers to deny women access to birth control on job-sponsored health care plans. But this week in D.C. will be one to remember for indigenous and environmental justice activists who celebrated three victories in court and another over corporations. Thursday's Supreme Court decision in McGirt v. Oklahoma affirmed that the U.S. government's treaty with the Muscogee Creek Nation must still be recognized by Congress and that nearly half of what is known as the U.S. state of Oklahoma is actually Native American land. In the 5-4 decision, Justice Neil Gorsuch sided with the liberal wing of the court and said that land promised to tribes in the 19th century remains a reservation for the purposes of federal criminal law. Quote, on the far end of the Trail of Tears was a promise, Gorsuch wrote, forced to leave their ancestral homes in Georgia and Alabama, the Creek Nation received assurances that their new lands in the West would be secure forever. Because Congress has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word, end quote. Gorsuch wrote in the majority opinion. Rebecca Nagel, a Cherokee writer based in Oklahoma, said that the Native people in the state will be talking about Thursday for decades. On Monday night, the Supreme Court also upheld rejection of a crucial permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, and that was within hours of the Dakota Access Pipeline being shut down by a federal judge. And the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which would have crossed the Appalachian Trail, was canceled by Duke Energy and Dominion Energy, citing cost and legal challenges. The project was set to cut through indigenous communities and historic African-American towns in West Virginia, Virginia, and North Carolina, such as Union Hill in Buckingham County, Virginia, founded by formerly enslaved men and women after the Civil War. On the grounds, Michelle Roberts spoke to Ella Rose, whose home in Union Hill is near where Duke and Dominion wanted to construct a fracked gas compressor station. When I heard the news about this Atlantic Coast pipeline being canceled, it felt like the best day of my life. 
I felt vindicated for the hard work that all of us had done to have stopped this monstrosity on our lives. Now I feel like that I can return to the happy and peaceful life that I ordinarily retired to. Pam Tali of San Francisco, a friend of this show, was one of the elders who went to Standing Rock protests in North Dakota starting in 2016 to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline. She spoke to Michelle about that victory. The battle to abolish environmental racism is fought in, in many ways, but it all comes down to the same thing, is that people of color and the indigenous here and around the world fighting to really protect land, water, soil, and learn to be in balance with Mother Nature. On Thursday, a U.S. federal judge rejected the latest effort by Dakota Access LLC to avoid the court-ordered shutdown of the oil pipeline, which has already leaked. The company wants to file an appeal now with a higher court. In other national news, the organization Somos Vanessa Guillen, DMV, held a rally here in D.C. at the Washington Monument to call for justice and a congressional investigation into the death of Guillen, the Fort Hood soldier found dead last week after two months of being missing and after complaining to her family about being sexually harassed at the base. Dozens of lawmakers have joined Representative Tulsi Gabbard in calling for a congressional investigation and for a system that allows victims of sexual abuse in the military to get justice. And at 7 a.m. on Tuesday, July 7th, a band of protesters showed up at the Mitchell Park, D.C. home of Trump aide and son-in-law Jared Kushner to reject the Trump administration's support of Israel's plan to illegally annex Palestinian land on the West Bank. Carrying signs that read, No More APAC Politics, and annexation enables apartheid, the dozens of marchers stopped in front of Kushner's house where speakers like Noah Wagner of If Not Now call for military aid to Israel to be conditional on no annexation of the West Bank and respect for the human rights of Palestinians. It is unbearable to have our people's trauma crushed into a bludgeon with which to oppress other people. And it is unbearable to have a president, to have people like Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump actively align with white nationalists, um, as if that will protect the Jewish people, as if they're a friend of ours, and then claim that they are because they love Israel. Locally in D.C., the movement against racism shifted to housing at a Black Homes Matter rally on Monday on Freedom Plaza, opposite the Wilson Building, which is D.C. City Hall. Jonathan Hutto, an organizer with Empower D.C., said that the rally was successful in securing at least $50 million for desperately needed repairs to public housing in the budget tentatively approved by the D.C. Council. At the rally, Dave McIntosh Peters with the new youth group, Rise and Move, had pointed criticisms of Mayor Miro Bowser. If Black Lives Matter to her, she would be taking the necessary steps to adjust the disparity between the rich and the poor in D.C. We need to reclaim D.C., and that was one of the motivators that got me and my friends to found Rise and Move. We feel like right now is an easy way to rise up and take action, because right now there's a lot of things going on in the city. 
D.C.'s budget process is shaping up to be at least a tug of war between the D.C. Council and the mayor's office, especially as some council members attempt to be responsive to the demands of protesters to defund the police, and the district's revenue has taken a big hit because of COVID-19. Chantel James filed this report. Under increasing calls from activists to reallocate police funding, the D.C. Council voted Tuesday to reduce the police budget by $15 million and dissolve MPD's security contract with the D.C. public schools. The new budget Mayor Bowser originally submitted to the council allocated $533 million to police, and she has stated the aim to increase the number of police officers in the city to 4,000 by 2023. In addition to reducing the allocation of funds to the police from the mayor's proposal, the council voted to raise business taxes and devote the $60 million to social services, including housing vouchers, assistance to undocumented immigrants, and mental health assistance in schools. $0.5 million is to be devoted to a police reform commission, and there are increases to violence interruption. These motions were all spurred under the pressure of movements and actions that have evolved here in D.C. in the weeks since George Floyd's death, though they may yet fall short of demands. At the Committee of the Whole's vote, Councilmember Trayvon White of Ward 8 offered an amendment that would tax the city's wealthiest and devote the funds to community-based violence intervention supports. But just a few days ago, I had to go to the Children's Hospital and hear the scream of a mother, Miss Crystal McNeil, whose son was a victim of gun violence at 11 years old. She had to see her son shot in the head three weeks ago. She took a group from her neighborhood, which is Cedar Gardens, out of town to do healing circles, violence interruption, relationship building, and mediations. And while coming back three weeks later, her son is a victim of gun violence in the same neighborhood she had an event at that, that day. And so we have to do more. Our residents not just suffering, but literally dying in the streets, especially our kids. And so this is one of many efforts, and I need your support to support this amendment. The second council vote on the budget will take place on July 21st. From North ECC, this is Chantal James. In other local news, Washington, D.C. activists seeking to put a proposal to decriminalize magic mushrooms before voters submitted their petitions on Monday that signify they have enough signatures to qualify the measure for the November ballot. And finally, in culture and media, these dates in history this week. On July 9, 1868, the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified, one of the Constitution's Reconstruction Amendments, and among its most consequential, it defines U.S. citizenship and prohibits individual states from abridging the rights of any American citizen without due process and equal protection under the law. Its first section, which contains the Citizenship Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses, is the most litigated section of the entire U.S. Constitution and has formed the basis for such landmark decisions as Brown v. The Board of Education in 1954, Roe v. Wade in 1973, and Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015 regarding same-sex marriage. And finally, the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition has been recognized by the 400 Years of African American History Commission. 
the 400 Years of African American History Commission Act, was signed into law on January 8, 2018. This law established a 15-member commission to coordinate the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in English colonies. The commission is composed of the Smithsonian Institution of African American History and Culture, the National Park Service, and Howard University, among other prestigious institutions. As for her reaction, Coalition President Marsha Coleman Adebayo said, quote, While we are humbled and delighted at the recognition this grant represents, we receive it with heavy hearts, as at this very moment, when we should be celebrating, aggressive heavy equipment is destroying our ancestors' final resting place. Nationally renowned anthropologist Dr. Michael Blakey has affirmed the possibility of human remains based on photographs taken at the site. Two other anthropologists and an on-site archaeologist concur. On Thursday, July 9th, the coalition marched to the home of Montgomery County Executive Mark Elrich, calling on him to shut down the construction of the storage of a storage unit on River Road. The construction is illegal because it may be taking place on top of Moses Cemetery, an historic African burial site. And those are some of the headlines and happenings. Stay with us for more on culture and media this week with Professor Gerald Horn. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm joined today by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the activist and author of more than three dozen books, including his latest, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I understand that you've been... I don't know if I should express my condolences or what, but I understand you've been pouring through John Bolton's book because you have to keep up on all the news. Uh, for those who may not recall, John Bolton is the sacked national security advisor under the 45th U.S. president. They ended on bad terms. He's just published a tell-all book, The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. And I would say anyone in Washington, D.C., who's tied to an embassy probably should read it, because he does reveal how the White House and fundamentally how U.S. imperialism operates with regard to not only crises, but day-to-day issues. I would say particularly read it if you're interested in Cuba-Venezuela solidarity, because it's clear that when Juan Guaido, the U.S. puppet, sought to 
destabilize the Maduro-based government in Caracas, that this was all cooked up in the White House. And it's also apparent that the United States holds Cuba responsible, believe it or not, for the fact that their plan to overthrow Maduro did not succeed. I would also say you should read it if you're interested in the question of Iran, the question of Iran-Israel relations in particular, since these two forces are now in sharp conflict. And it's apparent that just as Mr. Trump was to the right of Mr. Bolton in terms of seeking to overthrow the Caracas regime, it's also apparent that Mr. Bolton was to the right of Mr. Trump with regard to seeking to overthrow the Iranian regime. I would also say read this book if you're interested in United States ties with the European Union, which Mr. Trump certainly does not respect if you were to take Mr. Bolton at his word. Certainly you should read it if you're interested in United States relations with China and Japan. However, I think that probably the most alarming aspect of this book, once again, is what Mr. Trump has to say and what Mr. Bolton has to say about China. And that allows me to bring up the alarmist speech given by FBI Director Christopher Wray this week, where he did everything but declare war on China. And I am not exaggerating. And this takes place in the context of U.S. battleships cruising off the coast of China in the South China Sea. Imagine what would happen if Chinese battleships were cruising off the coast of Southern California or off the coast of Washington, D.C. Mr. Ray revealed that there are thousands of FBI investigations into Chinese activities in the United States, including so-called espionage and so-called cyber theft and intellectual property theft. And many of these investigations and arrests and indictments that have ensued, including imprisonments, have focused on people of Chinese ancestry in the United States of America, but not exclusively, because the head of the Department of Chemistry at Harvard, Charles Lieber, has been indicted for supposedly collaborating with China, so the reach is rather extensive. Uh, Mr. Bolton also implies that China has bought off a good deal of the U.S. elite, and he includes within this category the Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, and he hints that it may include the Trump son-in-law, Jared Kushner. So, once again, I would not necessarily recommend uh, paying for this book uh, off the record. Don't tell anybody that I mentioned this. I understand there's a free copy floating around somewhere on the internet. I don't know. I, I, I think I'm looking for some summer reading, and I don't know if I want to punish myself with that, you know, I feel like I am beset by so much corporate media and the particular corporate media spin that um, subjecting myself to just what would seem like a, you know, a deranged person, you know, <laughs> I, I just don't know. There's this phrase called white fragility. I'm feeling like, you know, like black fragility, <laughs> like I can't expose myself to too much of that at one time. But, okay, so you did mention China, and that kind of allows me to ask you, I want you to give me your take on the, the students being targeted this week. Well, just on Thursday, 
the California's Attorney General, Xavier Becerra, announced that the state would sue the Trump administration over its decision to not allow international students to take online-only courses. And that, of course, follows Harvard and MIT joining forces on Wednesday to bring a lawsuit also against this new policy that will even force students' uh, deportation of students if they are enrolled at a college not uh, offering in-person courses. What is this about? Is this just his normal targeting of immigrants? Is this also targeting China? Or is this about him being reelected and trying to use universities to help jumpstart the economy? What, what's happening? Well, I say it's all of the above. First of all, it's part of the attempt to have this sort of inauthentic normalizing of U.S. society. That's why Mr. Trump is pressuring K-12 through education to open up and to have face-to-face teaching despite resistance from the teachers' union, particularly the National Education Association. I know we're running out of time, so I, I definitely wanted to get you to weigh in on what I call the continuing war over history and truth. Trump began... I guess I should say on last weekend or the over the holiday weekend, he weighed in on what he called the, the left lying about our history, American history, really uh, an attempt to rally his base around the whitewashing of American history and I think what you call the immaculate conception of the, the United States. Well, you are correct when you suggest that Mr. Trump, per usual, is mangling the facts. And it's also fair to say that his attack on the teaching of history and the writing of history is part of his attempt to gin up racism in order to gin up the white supremacist vote for November. But it's even worse than that. I don't know if you heard about this letter that was published in Harper's Magazine by many writers and intellectuals, including Wynton Marsalis, believe it or not, the jazz trumpeter, uh, who consider themselves to be somewhat progressive. This letter objected to what they call, quote, cancel culture, unquote. If you read this letter, you get the idea that the people who are objecting to racism are running amok and sacking and plundering well-meaning people, as if this is a replay of the Chinese Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and the 1970s. But what the real objection to is the fact that the gatekeepers in signing this letter is David Brooks, the columnist of the New York Times, you might recall, tried to cancel Bernie Sanders a few months ago when it seemed that Bernie Sanders was surging by saying that even though Mr. Brooks was saying he was a never-Trumper, he was also never Bernie. Hmm. He was trying to cancel him. And interestingly enough, the letter is signed by Nicholas Lemon, who is a leading journalist. He wrote a review in The New Yorker of a very important book on St. Louis written by a Harvard professor, Walter Johnson, probably the most progressive book written by a Harvard professor, maybe ever. Uh, He tried to cancel that book because it was to the left of liberalism. So what this letter represents is that the gatekeepers from above or objecting to the gatekeepers from below. That is to say, the anti-racist movement, the progressive movement, which finally is trying to make sure that those in influential positions are not racist and white supremacists, or at least catering to same. Now, 
this is causing this fervent reaction. And I, I recommend, maybe not that people read the letter, but really pay attention because this is taking place at a time when you have drivers and cars draw, driving into protesters and killing them. This is at a time when police are shooting rubber bullets and gouging out the eyes of nonviolent protesters. This is at the time when we're still discovering and uncovering the spectacle of black men are hanging from trees and that being declared suicide. But rather than focus on those issues, they're focusing on gatekeepers from below so that their position as gatekeepers from above remains intact. It's really scandalous. Well, I will definitely check that out. And, you know, it reminds me of a conversation I had in our last culture and media extended section uh, last last month with a journalist, John Jeter, and him making the same summarization, basically, of the gatekeepers uh, wanting to hold at bay these rising black and brown voices because it, it threatens their position. So very interesting and and thank you for bringing that to us. But I'm going to have to leave it there. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Everam. well the may 25th death of george floyd at the hands of minneapolis police captured on a video that went viral and which has led to a global movement against racism occurred just more than five years after the april 2015 death of freddie gray a 25 year old man in baltimore who was arrested and videotaped screaming in pain as officers put their weight on his back and legs. He died seven days later with his spinal cord nearly severed. An investigation attributed Gray's death to the so-called rough ride that he received in the police van, and all the officers charged in his death were acquitted. But not before there was an uprising against police brutality in Baltimore that became a part of the case for the National 
movement for black lives that is growing even stronger and expanded five years later to include confrontation with the roots and varied impacts of systemic racism. Here to discuss five years after Freddie Gray and the connection to today's mass movement is attorney Latoya Francis Williams, who has successfully represented victims and the families of victims of police brutality and police murder in Baltimore, including the family of Tyrone West, beaten to death in 2013 by Baltimore police and a security guard for Morgan State University. Attorney Francis Williams has received many awards, including the prestigious National Black Lawyers Top 40 Under 40 Award for her multiple years of hard work in civil rights and criminal defense. She serves as counsel for the law office of A. Dwight Pettit as head of litigation. Welcome back to the show, LaToya. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, I wanted to first just open up the aperture as wide as we can right now and give you a chance to just talk about five years after Freddie Gray in terms of policing in general and what you've observed about police brutality and in these cases of police killings. Hmm. So, yes, I, I know this feels rather broad. But what I've seen since Freddie Gray is sadly not much change in policing. There has not only been a community outcry for change, uh, but there's also been a pushback from what we understand is the fraternal order of police. And so unfortunately, as is the case in many jurisdictions, Baltimore City in particular has really found itself circling the wagons and really protecting police misconduct now. What is now a worldwide cry for change has spawned a new conversation, which I am excited about because that may make the difference in moving forward. Now the covers have been pulled back and now people are really talking about not just police misconduct, but what can we do short term and long term to change police misconduct or police liability or police brutality. You know, from my vantage point, um, I have really identified in my practice Uh, proactive responses and reactive responses. Namely, I know there's a lot of outcry in changing the education and in changing the training. But from my vantage point, as I say to any child walking the street, you don't need education and training to understand that putting a knee on someone's neck until they stop breathing and die is considered excessive force and quite frankly is wrong. Uh, But what I'd like to see is to weed out the bad police But weeding out the bad police really calls for acknowledging that a lot of these officers are quite frankly sick and should not be in the positions they're in in the first place. Weeding out bad police also calls for change from not just the rank and file, but perhaps even our mayors and our city council members that not only hire and recommend who should or should not be chief of police, that either discipline or don't discipline these officers when they act uh, and when they kill and when they maim and when they terrorize the community. So this conversation is coming after this horrible video went viral of George Floyd being strangled to death. Let's just call it the way we see it. Most of us saw a man being strangled to death on the ground. We saw a lynch mob. That's what we saw. Right. And so, so from your legal vantage point, what have you found to be the most destructive? Is it the power of these police unions the fraternal order of police, as you said, drawing the wagons around these police officers, 
or is it something that we've also heard discussed a lot recently and uh, even in Congress? And this is this whole issue of the qualified immunity that police enjoy. That It seems to almost give them a license to kill or a license to maim and injure and not be held accountable. I'll answer that kind of uh, twofold. One, I don't see the power of the police unions, like the Fraternal Order of Police, as being more destructive than the concept of qualified immunity. I think they certainly work hand in hand. And our police unions understand qualified immunity, quite frankly, better than many citizens and many lawyers. Uh, Qualified immunity is a civil construct. It does not stop an officer from being criminally prosecuted. It, however, provides a level of protection by saying, if in fact the police do wrong, they kill, they maim, they murder, whatever they do, and you would like to bring a civil action, not criminal, a civil action, the standard for keeping and maintaining a lawsuit against them raises past the level of negligence to gross negligence, or what we call uh, malicious conduct. Now, intentional conduct has nothing to do with qualified immunity. In other words, if I can argue or successfully plead that an officer pointed a gun at me, pulled the trigger, or as they say, discharged their service weapon in my direction, and I was struck by a projectile, I was shot, that's an intentional conduct that does not get any protection from qualified immunity, right? If, in fact, my argument is that the conduct was either malicious or grossly negligent. In many respects, the arguments in these cases are so horrific, it is very difficult for an officer to say, I killed this person by mistake, it was merely an accident. What they tend to say is, I was effectuating a law enforcement move, I was trying to detain someone, arrest someone, and they themselves had a heart attack, just had a heart attack. Sadly, many of our Office of the Chief Medical Examiners kind of toe the line and support Mm. that type of silly argument. Mm. And many times what we have to do as plaintiff's counsel is hire our own pathologist to challenge the cause and manner of death. So let me back up to what qualified immunity does and doesn't do. So where we have DAs or state's attorneys around the country saying that they can't bring charges and they cannot prosecute officers because of this concept of qualified immunity, that is a cop-out. A crime Mm. is a crime. The standard it takes to prosecute a civilian is the same standard it takes to prosecute a police officer. If, in fact, there is probable cause to believe a crime was committed, then charges can be brought. The standard to convict, which is proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal case, is the same no matter who you are. Take what happened in Freddie Gray, for example. I have been very public about my criticism of the state's attorney's prosecution in Baltimore City against the officers that murdered Freddie Gray. And where qualified immunity will come in in this respect is this. The officers are charged. Some of them decided to have trials, as you all know. Uh, Those that were acquitted, the state's attorney's office decided simply not to go forward against the remainder. So, So everyone wasn't, quite frankly, subjected to the criminal justice system to fruition, uh, but the state decided not to move forward. But the state's attorney's office did a very poor job of describing, number one, what was the standard of care these officers owed this individual that was in their custody, in their care, that couldn't do anything for himself. He was cuffed to the rear, as we call in the prone position, was forced to lay flat in a metal box. And I ask everyone, when the officer says, well, we didn't know we were supposed to seatbelt him, I ask anyone, do you put your child in the seat? 
flat face down on the floor of the backseat of your car and bounce around and ride around? Of course not. That's silly. But what the state's attorney's office allowed these officers to do was to get away with this idea that they didn't know the standard of care owed to someone in their care and custody. Qualified immunity. What does it mean? It means in this context, were the officers acting reasonably when they decided to handcuff this young man to the rear, putting him flat down in a metal box and literally gave him what we call in Baltimore a rough round, took corners as fast as you can. It severed his spine, most certainly. But they were able to say we didn't know that we had an obligation to take care of him in our care and custody. So if that were a civil suit, we would have an expert take the stand and testify what is the norm, what is reasonable conduct, what is our obligation to someone in the care and custody as a non-free person, what is considered reasonable under the circumstances, what is grossly negligent, what is reckless, and what is intentional conduct, and then most importantly, did it cause the death of Freddie Gray? So the state's attorney's office did a horrendous job in presenting the obligations of these officers and quite frankly, let them off the hook. My child at the time that these cases were going on, said to me, mommy, I put on my seatbelt. Mm-hmm. So, so the question when it comes to qualified immunity, and more importantly, what was more destructive, and I only use Freddie Gray as the example because Freddie Gray was international. We all remember the grueling facts, but I use it as an example. So what in that context was more destructive, or could have been more destructive? Would it have been the power of the union in saying our officers did everything they could have or should have done? Perhaps not. Uh, was it more damaging that the state's attorney or the person prosecuting in the criminal case it's the state's attorney's office in the civil case it would have been me a civil lawyer uh, would it have what is more powerful uh, that we don't know our standard of care that we don't know the law or we refuse to argue and hold these officers to the level uh, that the community says is reasonable because that's what the standard is an officer cannot just say oops i didn't know In fact, in Baltimore City, and I say this all the time, believe it or not, Baltimore City has one of the most rigorous sets of general orders. Those are really the policies and procedures that tells an officer how they can and cannot act. And we're not talking about common sense. We're talking about what to do under certain circumstances. And above all, the general order says that the protection of life is paramount. The protection of safety is paramount. Deadly force shall only be used if deadly force is facing the officer or the risk of protracted injury. So this idea that the state's attorney in that case, the prosecutor of that case, did not hold these officers to the standard that they were supposed to be held to was devastating to those cases. I want you to hold that thought. We're going to take a brief break. This is On the Ground. We'll be right back.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm in conversation with attorney Latoya Francis-Williams, civil rights attorney based right here in the DMV in the Baltimore area. And before the break, Latoya, we were talking about the issue of qualified immunity and the way that it is being used and not used by police and prosecutors. In your practice, you've also explored the issue of mental health, not only for your clients, the families of your clients, the the families that you represent, but also looking into the mental health of police officers. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that relates to what you see happening on the streets? And I ask that because a lot of us looking at that video of George Floyd, what we're looking at is the expression of Chauvin's face. And so many people have remarked about the fact that he had his hands in his pockets. And really thinking about the mentality that he represented to people as he sometimes even looked looked into the camera. And I'm also thinking about the fact that since the war in Iraq, I've seen multiple advertisements or kind of promotions that encourage police departments to hire veterans. Mm-hmm. And so not only do we have increasingly militarized police departments receiving all this military equipment through a federal program, but we also have people who have been on the battlefield and seem to police our communities in terms of black communities like they are still on the battlefield. And you hear police officers or defense officials talk about our communities as a battlefield or talk about enemy combatants (laughs) when we are taxpayers who pay their salary and they're supposed to serve and protect, not treat us like combatants. Occupying our communities, quite frankly. Yes. You know, one of the things that pains me is that reality that many of these officers, as I was expressing, uh, interviewing them, deposing them, not only filing suits, but addressing them in open court have not only mental health problems and conditions, but they go unchecked. And what I have found in working with my mental health experts, uh, you can't ask a sick officer to police your community. No different than when I deal with victims of police brutality uh, and survivors of homicide. And for example, one of my clients, Shamel Maxwell, he's now over the age of 18, so I can call his name, was chained to a gurney in a hospital and beat about his head until he was deaf. And uh, the officer, Dwayne Williams from Baltimore City Police Department, was able to uh, leave the, the, the department and he ran for office in Baltimore City. And we expected Shamel Maxwell to simply re-socialize himself back into his household, his, his schooling. He has a disability that's not being addressed. Now we sue, uh, we sued in federal court and we won a sum of monies, but that's not enough. How do you help the community when you still have these sick officers literally patrolling the neighborhoods, not only traumatizing and re-traumatizing, but there have been many studies done, many studies done on the trauma suffered by the community by simply having police contact, much less police brutality 
And so the reality is, is they need not only clinical help when it comes to these police agencies and these police departments, um, but from my vantage point, these officers should not be allowed back on the street. They should not be able to carry service weapons. They should not be able to contact the community until they are cleared by a clinician. Psychologist, psychiatrist, doctor, social worker, something needs to be done. Quite candidly, a lot of these officers go through much trauma and they drink it away and they smoke it away, and they beat their spouses. These are things that I have uncovered, not just me, but perhaps many other practitioners like me that have to depose these officers and get their mental health records and get their medical records. Here's where we hold the departments responsible. If you want to continue to pretend that these officers that shoot and kill one week and are let back on the streets the next week, if you want to pretend that they have not now become desensitized to killing brown and black people, that they're not using our communities as a training ground, then you are turning a blind eye. You have a reckless disregard for the safety of the community that you are paid to serve. So it really takes not just lawyers, but it takes people in the community to not only say, no, this is not okay, we're not standing for it anymore, but we have got to mandate that these officers not only get actual medical help, but we be allowed to sit in on, if it ever comes to this, internal affairs review, review boards. Obviously that these officers, when they turn many times to relieving their stress with substance abuse, you can see that. Uh, but sometimes when they don't turn to substance abuse, at least they're not tested regularly, which they should be, mm. and randomly. Mm. Mm. Uh, when they turn to substance abuse uh, and we find out about it, we can do something. But then what happens next? Instead of getting paid vacation and paid leave, a part of the leave should be getting help and demonstrating that you are cleared to come back. Now the next question is, who sets the standard? Does the community set the standard or does the fraternal order of police set the standard on what these officers, what hurdles they have to get over to be privileged to serve our communities. We've got to really start looking at this as it is a privilege to allow these persons to serve. And I do mean serve our community because to be very candid, a lot of these officers, particularly in Baltimore City, they don't live in Baltimore City. They don't see themselves as a part of the community and they certainly see this job as a us versus them, as an opportunity simply to make a few dollars and to take advantage of and they scoff at the idea that sometimes people want their rights protected. Sometimes they don't want to be abused by government and government overreach. They scoff at the idea. Quite frankly, if you want to really go back, if you recall our office represented one of the young ladies shot in the select lounge shooting, if you remember, uh, officers came to select lounge in Baltimore City and closed down the club. It was simply overcrowded. And they ended up uh, opening fire on a crowded parking lot as patrons were simply going back to their car. Shot and killed one man. Shot a bunch of ladies simply walking to their vehicle that was parked on the other side of the parking lot. And I remember a trial which lasted forever. The officers, the shooting officers, sat behind counsel and scoffed and laughed and, and ate sunflower seeds and, and complained on how long the trial was. Never mind that people are dead. Never mind that a client was shot in the head, another young lady shot in the arm, someone else shot in the back. Never mind that lives destroyed. They were frustrated that the trial simply took long. Mm. So 
So show them the mentality. Either they're desensitized or they simply just don't give a damn because they don't see themselves as a part of the community. But this is a trend that we can certainly fix. Certainly this is a trend that we must turn around. Uh, so really to circle back and answer the question in, in terms of uh, where we see departments hiring, refusing to fire, refusing to train, refusing to help, refusing to get help for officers that are clearly traumatized, that are clearly unprepared, that obviously see this as a us versus them, uh, that we can do something about. And right now, this legislation that is, at least that we see being put forth across the nation in terms of, as you had mentioned, qualified immunity, we can't stop there. We really have to get in contact with attorneys like myself that do this day in and day out to address what change we can make in the interim. One of the things that I tout, and I'll kind of wrap it up with this, one of the things that I tout is in terms of holding officers responsible, um, treat them as if you treat anybody else. If one of my clients shot at and shot someone in the back twice that and killed them, they'd be charged with first-degree murder, if not lesser-included offenses. Uh, a crime is a crime, right? But I think what we need to do is make sure that we have prosecutors that know what they're doing. My recommendation was and will continue to be that every jurisdiction in this country needs to have a police misconduct docket, meaning those that prosecute these cases actually know what they're doing. Judges that sit in judgment of or sit as the person calling the balls and strikes, they cannot have been recently removed from the state's attorney or the DA's office. It's inconsistent. There's a conflict of interest. And if they want to pretend there's a Chinese wall, they can pretend by themselves. There should be people that are designated, that practice in this niche area to really bring down the heavy hammer. Because what we don't want is we don't want this community to get used to police brutality and become desensitized uh, to not getting justice. I know we're, we're running out of time for both yes. of us. And um, so I just wanted to uh, end with a question about the what seems to be almost always uh, a spike in crime during these times when police and policing is being scrutinized. I remember after Freddie Gray, since that's our touch tone for the day, there being this spike in crime after uh, the uh, uprising there. And there was even something coined, I uh, forgot who was it, was it Comey who, who coined something called the Ferguson effect, mm-hmm. which, which seemed to imply that police were being cowed by the scrutiny and by um, the protests against brutality and so that they weren't able to do their jobs and so crime is being, uh, there's a spike. And you even hear uh, Mayor uh, Bottoms in in uh, Atlanta, kind of admonishing the black community uh, about uh, crimes that have occurred, these really t- tragic um, crimes, you know, targeting, you know, black children who've been killed over the July 4th weekend, as if it was the larger community's um, responsibility and as if this was some type of. Um, way of saying, okay, you see how your police, your criticism of the police is not valid or, you know, you're, 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 you're being so hard on the police, but see, you're killing yourselves. But this has always been the case that black people are expected to do more with less. 
Uh, we are expected to take the scrutiny, take the criticism, and let it roll off your back. Take the abuse, pretend it's not happening, and then somehow excuse the police misconduct. So, you know, the mayor was certainly wrong, not only wrong uh, in her facts, but wrong to try to change the subject. Mm. Uh, because quite frankly, uh, we pay and educate and train law enforcement to protect the community and treat the community with dignity and respect and safety, whether or not we know our own rights. So one has nothing to do with the other, right? Right, right? We know that when there is crime committed or allegedly committed by a civilian, guess what? The criminal justice system swoops in and does what it's supposed to do. Sometimes justice moves slow, but it moves. The difference and the distinction is when law enforcement batters and kills, they act with impunity. So it is nonsensical to try, it, we call it a false equivalent, right? It, is, it makes no sense to say, see, we can't actually hold the police or law enforcement to any type of standard because if they just can't act with impunity, then you all would just go ahead and kill yourselves. Number one, that's not a reality. And I really don't appreciate politicians being dishonest mm -hmm. uh, with what the real issue is. And the real issue is police brutality has run amok long enough. The generation today is not standing for it. And quite candidly, um, I, you know, I've always said, police know to who to pick on. Mm -hmm. Police know who to pick on. Wow. They are not, and they will not run to certain neighborhoods, uh, certain affluent neighborhoods. Uh, guns are blazing. You know, they're not going to do that. They won't kick in your door, even if there's a want to serve. It's just not happening. They know they can abuse and kill those that they think are killable and those that they think have no voice, those that they think will not vote, those that they think will have no effect on anything going forward. All right. Well, I think you're right. People, this generation is is also understanding the difference between state violence and violence in our communities. I've been speaking with attorney LaToya Francis-Williams, and we're very grateful for her taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much, LaToya. And thank you so much for having me. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James, Thomas O'Rourke, to Colin Michael, and Michelle Roberts. And thanks to all the people checking out our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Everum. That's On the Ground W, Esther Everum. And that's on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our pages, and website have a protest sign with green lettering that says, On the Ground. Of course, you can also listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us there as well. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, Twitter, or supporting us on patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. The music we played this hour included Street Fighter Moss by Kamasi Washington, Pig Feet by Terrace Martin, featuring Denzel Curry, Dolly, Kamasi Washington, and G. Perico. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Everum. Until next time, take good care. And keep raising your voice. Peace.